Welcome back to Real Talk Torah, courtesy of The Database with Rabbi Yehoshua Eisenberg, where it's a rainy day here at The Database, but we're going to proceed anyway. And for today's topic and shear, we are going to be revisiting Yaakov Avinu's deal with the devil. And we'll explain exactly what that means, but as we'll see, it's a little bit of a double entendre, maybe even a triple entendre. Um, but a little bit more on that after we thank our sponsors. So first we have Leoli Nishmas, Shmuel Menachem and Ayelib, Leah Bas Avram, and Yehuda Chizdeh Akir Ben Harav Shlomo. All their neshamos should have an aliyah. And anyone else who wants to sponsor, partner up with us here at the database with what we do, whether you enjoy the shiurim or the conversations that we have here at the podcast or the other series that we have, you just need a sponsor, reach out to me at the database at gmail.com. It's the data then base, B-E-I-S at gmail.com to be a part of what we do here. Okay, and as we look at the story of Yaakov Avinu in our Parsha. So Yaakov Avinu engages in some seemingly controversial behavior, and that is namely when he, quote-unquote, steals the brachos from his father Yitzchak Avinu, from his brother Esav, all at the whim of his mother Rivka. Now that we've named all of the characters in the story, we're going to try a little bit to understand the actions of the star of the show, and that's Yaakov Avinu. And you could think of this shear as an addendum and an expansion to a conversation that we featured here on Real Talk Torah a year ago when my brother, my elder brother of Zaniel, who joins us frequently, and we love having him here, he joined us for a conversation about the actions of Yaakov Avinu, how to relate to the controversial actions of Yaakov Avinu, was Yaakov Avinu right or wrong, and how it could be that Yaakov would have done such a thing, how are we supposed to understand Yaakov, his personality, his essence, and what he was commanded to do by his mother at that time. So that was a conversation that we had then exactly one year ago. And while mentioning that, I'll also mention that um, as of now, we have passed the milestone of one year of the Database Podcast, both on the Hebrew calendar and on the English calendar. So Baruch Hashem, that we're going to be saying very soon anyway for Hanukkah, which is coming up later this month. But enough on that. Let's talk about our story now. So you could go back to the archives and listen to the very in-depth conversation that my brother of Daniel and I had on this topic. But for this one, for this particular share and conversation, this discussion right now, I wanted to add a few points to try to better understand the actions of Yaakov Avinu. And the question is just very simple. We know that Yaakov engaged in the behavior that he engaged in, which at first glance is very controversial. You know, if we, if we could point to things that look incorrect about what Yaakov did, so we can argue that maybe there was, he was um, treading on Midvar Shakir Tirchak, tre- maybe treading on Gnevas Das. And we know there are Midrashim that try to or whether they're trying or just reporting, but they're giving um, a better or a better reflection of Yaakov Avinu. But however way you slice it, it doesn't look good for Yaakov Avinu, even if we'll say that Rivka Yemenu told him to do it. Okay, well, why is Rivka saying to do this? Even if you'll say that Rivka had some kind of a nevuah, it still doesn't look so right that Yaakov's engaging in such behavior. And the question is, let's assume, as we should, that Yaakov Avinu is the tzaddik, Let's assume, as we should, that Rivka Imenu is the tzaddikas. And let's assume, as we should, 
that history went in the way in the direction that it went in because that's what Hashem wanted, right? The fact that Yitzchak was blinded, and Rashi says so that Yaakov can get the brachos. So it begs the question of why history required, or or if it required, that Yaakov Avinu ends up engaging in such um, controversial behavior, underhanded tactics. Um, again, treading on these negative midos and, and these, these averos, perhaps, it, at least that's what it looks like to the, the common eye. So why is it that Yaakov would engage in such behavior? Was there a particular reason why this was the kind of practice that was required at the moment? Right? Not that it was, it was, it was more convenient to quote-unquote lie, not that it was more convenient to engage in underhanded tactics. Yaakov Avinu we, uh, we hope and assume is a lichat chila kind of an individual, right? If you think of a lichat chila Jew who tries to do everything in the most pristine way. The, so the, when, when, you know, we, we, it's not that Yaakov opted for an easier option, that Rivka opted for an easier option. We, 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 we have to assume that it wasn't that way. That for some reason, this, the, this was what was required, not just of the time, or maybe you could say, yes, required at the time, but for some, but for maybe for some deeper reason, it was absolutely necessary for Yaakov to engage in this particular kind of behavior. I'm not talking about the ends. I'm talking about the means. And this is the question that often comes up. Do the ends justify the means? I want to assume, and if, if I may, I want to try to present and bring out the possibility that's not just the question of whether the ends justified the controversial means, but maybe the controversial means were exactly what was needed for the time. That it was particularly in this derech that it had to happen. So where would I get such a thing? So it starts once again with this deal that Yaakov Vinu makes with the devil. So what's interesting is that you might think of Esav as representing the devil in a certain vein. And in fact, Yaakov does make a deal with the devil. How does Yaakov make a deal with the devil, with Esav, Harasha? So we know that this is, um, this is Esav seems to be this embodiment of evil from the beginning of the Parsha. Now, that does not mean that Esav didn't have free choice. Of course he did. But based on the choices he made, he created himself into what we could call an embodiment of the Eitzar Hara. And Yaakov quite literally makes a deal with him. When Esav uh, wants the lentils that Yaakov makes, they literally make a deal and they make a trade and Esav hand-delivers his Bechorah to Yaakov. So, so right then and there, Yaakov takes on the role, in a certain respect, of Esav. That's the first deal that Yaakov makes with the devil. Now, usually when we refer to making a deal with the devil, usually what that means is you're going to do something that's very inappropriate, something that's maybe evil and wrong, and... You're going to do that because of some ends that you need. Right now, you're going to make a deal with the devil. The connotations of such a deal, such an exchange, are not positive at first glance. But the question is, is there such a thing, is there such a time and a place for making a deal with the devil? So, we have a model for such a thing. One model that we have for such a concept of making a deal with the devil, another word that we don't like using in Yiddishkeit, is a bribe, a shochad. And yet there is a concept that a lot of the Mepharshim talk about called shochad l'satan. A shochad for the satan, a bribe to the embodiment of all evil. A bribe with the Sahara, a bribe with the devil, a deal with the devil. 
And th they talk about this concept, particularly in reference to one of the most controversial practices that exists in Judaism, doesn't really exist anymore, not until we get a base on English again, but that is the Seir La'azazel. On Yom Kippur, we have a special avoda where we offer a Seir Hashem, one goat to Hashem, and a Seir La'azazel. Another Seir that's going to this place called Azazel, which is explained by various Mepharshim as a reference to the dark side. The Satan, the Sahara, were giving a tribute, a korban, to the Satan, to the Sitra Achra, to the dark side. And the question is, why would we ever do such a thing? Why would we offer a tribute to the Satan? And the way some of the Mepharshim explain is the idea that we are appeasing and bribing the Satan to, to get out of the way, not to prosecute us. We're, de we're devoting some something to him so that he can get off our backs and not impede us on the very important day of Yom Kippur. This is the concept, the original model, or we'll see maybe not the original model, but the second most original model of the Shochad Satan, the bribe for the Satan. How does this bribe to the Satan translate nowadays? So you could say that there are times where you need to give a little bit more to yourself on the physical side. We try and we yearn and we aspire to lead spiritual lives where we're doing, you know, where, where the ideal is precious. We can abstain, right? This is what Messias Sharm talks a lot about. But sometimes it's not easy to maintain that. And if you prohibit everything to yourself, eventually you're going to prohibit nothing to yourself. If you shelter yourself too much, you're going to eventually want more. So there's a, there's a place and there's a time and there's a degree to which we are supposed to give ourselves physically. This is why you might see many Jewish events, be it a Mishmar program or some learning program, whatever it may be, and they offer food. They offer good challenge, good kishka, good kugel, right? Um, the, um, the, in Lander and Yeshiva where I used to go, they, they would have a blood drive and there would be so much good food, Chinese food, challenge, sushi, um, whatever it may be. And what's the point? It's supposed to motivate people to learn and engage in spiritual behaviors. Now, this is a perfect example, and some refer to it this way, as a shochad satan. We are giving in to the satan a little bit so that he will give us more in return. And that's exactly what Yaakov sort of did with the lentils, right? Sometimes you can give too much to the satan. When Esav made a deal with, with his personal satan, he gave away too much. And the trick is always not giving too much to that physical side. And it doesn't mean that it's ever okay to do a veros necessarily, but there's apparently a time and a place where a carbon is given to the satan. And that's what this concept is, a shochad satan. Now, what if I told you that there is, in fact, an intimate connection between the Seir Azazel and our Parsha? What if I told you that, in fact, it's a medrash? Because it is a medrash. Indeed, if you look at the medrash rabbah, the voracious rabbah, in Samach Hay 65, you find at least a couple of Midrashim in Samach Hay Yedad and Samach Hay Tesvav. So we find the Midrash making references to the two Seirim that Yitzchak asks his son Esav to bring him, which we know Yaakov ends up bringing him. The Midrash says that these two goats, they actually correspond to the Seir La Hashem and the Seir La Azazel. So we have these two, again, these two goats in both stories. And again, the Medrash says that that's what they correspond to, that Yaakov, uh, when, and that means that when Yaakov went to get those two goats, 
he has in mind Seir La Hashem and Seir La Azazel. That apparently, at least half of Yaakov's Avoda at that time is to offer, so to speak, a carbon to the Satan. Which means, maybe in a certain sense, that Yaakov has to engage in a behavior that resembles something to be given over to the Satan. And Yaakov is doing that at this particular moment as part of the tactic of the deal with the devil, so to speak, the, the arrangement that he's making at this moment to get the brachos from Yitzchak, it particularly, Bedavka, had to be done in such a way. Now, it's tricky, because, and, and, it's, and it's a little bit dangerous, because you don't always know how far to go and when it is too far. How much of this Shochad satan is appropriate for right now? Are there limits to it? And the answer is for sure that there are limits, but where exactly are those limits? That is the challenge of making deals with the devil, which sometimes you're supposed to. So, for example, there are many times where it's mutter to bend the truth. Um, and there, there are a handful of them that are recorded in Chazal. When can you bend the truth? So there are times when you're allowed, times when you're not. And there's something also called a Horas Shah, that maybe, that even though right now it looked like Nevas Das, but maybe once the, once the Neviah, once, once Rivka with Ruach HaKodesh, even though she's not, she's not counted among the Neviyos, but she had a Ruach HaKodesh, that, and she also had a prophecy from shame, if Rivka was, was telling to act, Yaakov to act based on that, so the, the, um, we could argue that there was Horas Shah that would have permitted Yaakov to engage in such, such behavior now, but I'm even arguing that maybe there was a lichat chila for Yaakov to engage in such behavior. That once Yaakov was being fitted into the role of Esau, this was absolutely what was required of him at that moment. There was also a famous comment of Rav Shimchin Rafal Hirsch, um, one of two famous comments that he makes on Parshas Toldos. The first famous comment that he makes is, is the controversial comment that Esau turned out the way he did because he was given the same chinuch as Yaakov, that Yitzchak and Rivka should have differentiated and given the, the proper kind of chinuch to him. The other famous comment of Rav Hirsch is the justification of Rivka's tactic, having Yaakov actually trick Yitzchak to get the brachos which was a way of explaining to Yitzchak that he had been tricked his entire life. Yitzchak might not have realized after years of disagreement between him and Rivka about who should be um, the Bukhor, etc. And again, there are so many different approaches to the story that we can't cheapen the story with one single approach. But just to put it out there, the Rav Hirsch says Rivka Badafka used this tactic um, al-pipshat as a way of showing Yitzchak that he could in fact be tricked, he could be making a mistake in his hashkafa for a long time. There could be something that he doesn't realize. Now, in terms of this idea of Yaakov getting fitted into the role of Esau, this is something that we see is a theme throughout Yaakov's life, the theme of of deception, the theme of the shady, um, you know, darker kind of practices which seem to be contrary to the Torah way. And this is something that we, we spoke about last year in Parsha Panorama as well, where Yaakov is playing a, a, a dual role, the role of his own and the role of Esav. We might say, and we, um, we also had um, Rav Gedalia Shor, who explains that Yaakov represents the Eitz HaChayim, Esav represents serving Hashem through the Eitz Hadas, where there's a mixture of good and bad in the Avodah, is to extract the good from the bad. And you have to do that out in the physical world. 
and the physical world is really the domain of the satan. And the, the idea is to play around with the satan and make sure you're extracting the good from him. And sometimes that only comes through making a cleverly arranged deal with the devil. And that's in fact what I'm arguing that Yaakov Avinu is doing here at this particular time. Now the question then is why Yaakov Avinu seems to live a life of so much suffering after having done this, if presumably it was the right thing, right? Why does Yaakov keep suffering, being, he keeps on being plagued by deception from his kids, from, um, from his, his, his uh, uncle and father-in-law, Laban, with the wives, everything that happens, Yaakov is running in circles because of all of the, quote-unquote, deception. Why does Yaakov suffer such gullus, because of what happened, right? There's the Medrash that talks about the tears of Esav, that because of the tears of Esav, that's why we had the tears of, of Mordechai during the Purim story, and why we, we suffered at the hands of Haman. Why do we suffer at the hands of Edom and Amalek, and so on and so forth. And so there is, um, there is a Rambam in his Parish Mishnayis, I believe it's in Adarim, where he talks about how Yaakov, by taking the right of the firstborn, he also inherited the Brisbane of Asarim, which said there was going to be a certain level of Gullus. But what I want to point to is another Marmakom, which I found in the same place that I found this Rambam, in the incredible Svarim of my Rebbe Rav Yonason Sachs, who has, wrote, has written over 30 Svarim and many on Parsha. And I found this particular Marmakom, not in his Parshas Toldos commentary, though it might be there. I found it back in Parshas Vayera, where he was talking about the Benos Lot. And when he was talking about the Benos Lot, he was dealing with the topic of Avera Lishma, which is a sugi that comes up in various Gemaras, it comes up in Horios, I think it comes up in Nazir, um, but it definitely comes up in Horios. And um, there might be another Masechta, maybe it wasn't Nazir, maybe it was somewhere else. But they talk about this concept of Avera Lishma. So sometimes it's connected to Esther Hamalka in her arrangements with um, Achashverosh. It's, um, um, the, it's talked about a lot with regards to Yael and Sisra. Now, this topic um, is connected to the subject of our Parsha, which is Yaakov Avinu and his tactics. And the idea is brought down in the Nitziv. The Nitziv in Harchev Davar, not the fa- more famous Haimik Davar, the depth of the matter, which is literally what Haimik Davar means. Harchev Davar means the expansion of the matter. And Harchev Davar are really the footnotes of the Nitziv on his Haimik Davar. And in the Harchev Davar, the Nitziv says something really, really incredible and really powerful. And he says this in connection to Yaakov Avinu. And just like we could say in connection to the Benos Lot. We spoke about the Benos Lot on Real Talk Torah a couple of weeks ago and how they acted l'shem shemayim. They engaged in what is outwardly an Avera, but they did it l'shma. It was an Avera l'shma. Now, the concern is when we get to Yaakov Avinu. The Nitziv makes a similar argument that Yaakov engaged in an Avera, but l'shma. And this might be something that sometimes appears when we deal with this bribing of the satan, right? Where we give in a little to the satan, or sometimes more than a little bit. But we do it for perhaps a greater good, where there are times where we need to know the tactics of the Sahara. If we know that the Sahara, for example, likes us eating food, so we try to play into that Sahara as well and use it for the right reasons. I also learned um, in psychology um, a bunch of years ago of a concept called ego depletion, which is basically, it suggests, it's a, um, psychologist suggests that the more you try to engage in self-control, 
So um, there's a correlation between a lot of self-control and the, and the loss of self-control later. <laughs> Meaning, the more, the more self-control you had, later the ego depletion would cause that because you engaged so much energy in controlling yourself, later you, ha- you were much less likely to be able to do it, which seems to suggest that you could only hold back for so long. And what they suggested is that maybe it means that you, um, if, you, if you increase um, your, your energy, we increase your sugar levels by eating something sweet, i.e. giving into the eight Sahara a little bit, that, that correlated with more self-control later. Sounds like a, a real-life practical example of shochad l'satam, where sometimes it's necessary. Anyway, coming back to the Nitziv then. The Nitziv suggests that Yaakov engaged in such an arrangement. He engaged in an Avera l'shma. However, says the Nitziv, when it comes to an Avera l'shma, um, and again, we don't know how to measure this and how to do it the right way, and this requires... Um, because of how risky and how dangerous it is, it, re- it requires humility, intellectual humility, and, and, and discussion with a posek about when to engage in such a behavior. And as a rule, we don't. But when an Avera Lashma is engaged in, it's appropriate and sometimes even greater than a Mitzvah Shalol Lashma, or at least, at least the, the, equal to a Mitzvah Shalol Lashma. But, only, but the problem is, if you get Hana, if you derive any ounce of pleasure from that Avera, that is what indeed you will suffer for. And the Nitziv suggests that Yaakov derived some Hana from the tears of Esav that, that, that emerged from Yaakov's controversial practices. Meaning, Yaakov did what he did, and it was the right thing at the moment. And even though he would suffer later for it, right, and there's a, um, I also mentioned in, the, in the, old, the previous conversation with my brother, that the Zayis Ra'an unquotes the Gura, who says that when Rivka says, a lie, that uh, the curse is going to be upon me, right? The, um, it's really a reference to the curse that Yaakov would experience when he says that a lie upon me uh, became kulana, all of these things. A lie is reference to Ayin, Esav, Lamed, Lavan, and Yud, Yosef, the different travails that Yaakov experienced. So there were certain things that Yaakov was going to suffer later, and it all emerges from the little lishma, oh, sorry, the little hana that Yaakov derived, albeit from an avera lishma, but nonetheless it was an avera, uh, at least in a certain light. And the point is that we can make the argument that Yaakov did what he had to do at that moment, but because of the nature of the behavior, right? It's a, it's a, this this controversial behavior. There are consequences. This is not the practice that we hope to engage in, and when we have to, it's a, it's a really, it's a, it's a fine line, it's a, it's a tightrope that we're walking on, and which means that either side that you veer from the middle proper path, you can fall and really hurt yourself. And we could suggest that in a certain sense, Yaakov did what he had to do, but of course he was walking that really fine line. Anyway, this I hope um, gives you even more light into understanding the nature of Yaakov Avinu's actions in our Parsha and how sensitive it was at the time. But we see that it's not just a matter of convenience, but it was a matter of hashkafa and perhaps a matter of practicality, not just easy practicality, but lemaisa, what needed to be done. We could argue again, even on somewhat of a lechatzchila realm, but the idea that Yaakov was engaging it in, in his action from a perspective of Torah, and obviously for the good of Torah. And with that, I will ask you to keep it real, keep talking, and most importantly, keep the Torah. Thank you for joining us here at The Database.